Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Howard Purcell. Welcome to Sandbox Stories, Dr. Purcell. Thank you, Dr. Jens. Happy to be here with you, my friend. It's a thrill to have you here. Uh, currently sitting as president and CEO of the New England College of Optometry, I want to get into some of your career and we want to get to know you better. So you're a second generation OD. Um, what are your observations of your dad's optometry career and how it's different from what we uh, practice today? <laughs> wow, how isn't it different? Uh, you know, I would say in some ways I'm a third generation OD, but okay. my grandfather, uh, my dad's father, uh, came in through Ellis Island and he was a jeweler. His family was in the jewelry business. He picked up the business and he wound up making gold frames and uh, he would peddle them around Manhattan in this box. I mean, I remember him telling me the story so, uh, so vividly in my mind. And he started meeting these people who were doing the eye exams. And his suggestion to my father was, hey, you know, <coughs> pardon me, you don't want to be peddling frames around. You should be a professional. Go to, go to optometry school. Didn't even really know what it was all about. So my dad was, uh, I think, the third class from New England College of Optometry that actually received a doctor of optometry degree. But of course, you know very well, Scott, that the, the doctorate degree back in 1954 uh, differed greatly from the one I received in 1984 and that we gave out this year in, in 2021, you know, the evolution of our profession is, it, it's really a, an incredible story when you think about it. And so many people have worked so hard to get our profession where it is. But, you know, look, my dad, this was a day in the life of my father in many ways. You know, he had the beach right behind him. He'd be out at the beach. If he had a patient, his uh, assistant would wave at him. He'd come in, he'd zip up a little jacket. He'd see a few patients in the office. He'd go back out to the beach. And so as a kid, I thought, this profession is pretty pretty neat. This is what I want to do. I want to spend my days on the beach and see an occasional patient here and there. Well, it evolved pretty quickly. So by the time I graduated in 84, you had to, well, first of all, optometry was very different. Mm -hmm. And my dad had had now a 35-year, almost 40-year-old practice that I was able to, to learn from. And, you know, the difference is, well, wow, my dad was a great business person. My dad understood the business of optometry. My dad understood refraction. He was a master refractionist. I mean, that's what he did. You know, I remember him taking big pieces of glass. This is really going to date me now. So uh, here we go. Uh, big pieces of glass. He'd have a pattern. He'd put the pattern on this little device underneath and he'd put the piece of glass on top and he would crank this thing, which would etch out the shape of the lens. He would chip it off and then go over to a hand edger. So he was actually a master craftsman as wow. well in many ways. He would make a pair of glasses from scratch and be incredibly proud as deservedly so of the finished product. So, you know, was it different? Incredibly different. I remember even one other thing I will share. I remember when Verilux, the first progressive lens uh, came out. So that's now 60 years ago, just as an example. Um, and remember my dad talking about that as this huge leap that it really gave optometry this new sense of purpose and this um, elevation of now you have these very precise measurements. And so kind of the way we think today about our, our scope of practice and how we've expanded our scope of practice, 
back then, just getting a progressive lens and being able to dispense that was was really interesting. And, and those roots are so important to our profession. Uh, we're all so proud, as we should be, of, of where we've come. And what I see right now, you know, think about this as well, Scott. When my dad graduated in 1954, it was a four-year program. And it's a four-year program today. And what we have to teach students today versus what, what they had to teach now in the same time frame, I mean, I tip my hat to the faculty. I, I, if there's something I've observed since I've moved over from my other responsibilities into, into academia is just how amazing the faculty are at all the schools and colleges. I can speak for NECO, but, uh, and of course we have the best faculty, but uh, they are amazing what they do and the commitment they have to this profession. And it's just, it, it really blows my mind. But think of the job they have in addressing your question about the evolution, think of the job they have and it's a wonderful one, but the pressure is significant on them and they, they do it with class and grace and, and knowledge and everything you would want. So I, I say this a lot. If, if you're ever feeling bad about optometry one day, you have a tough day, whatever, spend the day at a college of optometry and see the enthusiasm the future of this profession has. They're so excited. It's their dream. It's what they've always wanted. And being around that is, is just you know, inspiring. Uh, it's, it's more than that, but that's the first word that comes to mind. It's incredibly inspiring. Well, you exude it. That's, that's wonderful. Let's go back to the time when you were going to decide to go to college or not. Your dad found a way to convince you to do so. What was that about? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've, I've told this story only to smaller circles, perhaps, but um, the, the larger story was I played drums my whole life. I enjoy music and fortunately my kids got into it too um so you know i was a drummer i grew up in miami beach miami beach florida at the time i grew up it was a happening place as it is again now the south beach and all the fun things that go on down there but there was a lot of entertainment going on and i was uh, playing my drums almost every night getting you know in clubs that i wasn't old enough to be in but i was there because i was a musician and got to play and it was just a funny odd thing there but um so i did that i was making money and i thought this is what i want to do for my life but of course i Worked with my dad. I spent time in his office, and I saw how much he really enjoyed what he did. Uh, and he never really was the one to kind of say you need to do optometry or you should. His only thing was, you know, you can always play your drums, but uh, but you should have a profession, you know. And, and I get it as a as a parent, you know. Not too long after, um, I, I really understood that. But the funny, sort of funny story was uh, back in the day, I had a girlfriend whose dad was this amazing uh, keyboard player, amazing pianist, and I would go over her house at times just to listen to him play. I mean, he was just, just incredible. And um, one uh, evening he asked me, he said, you know, we're playing at this place, this club, and this place I hadn't heard of. You know, why don't you come and join us and sit in with us? I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. This guy is just so talented and what, what a treat it'll be for me to get to play with him. And so I uh, went to this club and played with him. And although the, the experience of playing with him was fabulous, uh, this place was a dump. I mean, it was just, just imagine the worst dump you've ever been in and multiply it to five, because I'm sure you don't go to any such places, Dr. Jen, but you can imagine a place that you would not really want to be in. And now here I am playing with this guy who I thought was incredible. So I recall very vividly after that experience, thinking to myself, you know, my dad's right. You know, I can always, you know, play my music, but I should have a profession. And that's what actually made me finally decide to go that route. I was not going to go to college. Once I decided to go to college, my, my goals were set. I wanted yeah. to be an optometrist. The ironic thing is I found out about a year later that it was actually a bit of a setup in that 
my father knew that he was playing at this place, figured that if he invited me, I would probably get smart enough to understand what he was trying to tell me and uh, work like a charm, although I was so mad at him. I was felt like he played me and nobody likes that feeling and I just really got mad at him for it. Again, being a parent today, I understand it. I'm thrilled. I've never regretted being an optometrist. This profession has been amazing to me and my family and and now to have a chance to, I mean, I pinched myself to have a chance to be back at my alma mater, my dad's alma mater, to try to do what I can to take the wonderful position that Scotty, Cliff Scott, left uh, the institution in and try to leave it better than I found it, which is, I think, what we all want to do when we have anything to do with something. But it's in my heart. I'm so passionate about it. Yeah, I can't wait to get to work every day. I, I work with an amazing group of people, as I've already said, the faculty, our staff, who just give everything to the institution, you know, 127 years old. It's, there's a lot of rich history there. Like, like when I joined J&J, they told me we've built a hundred years of experience, you know, of a, of a wonderful reputation and you can ruin it. So, here, you know, here's the things you need to learn. I say the same thing here when we've gotten, we have a big responsibility at NACA to carry the torch for so many amazing people who've come before us and the contributions they've made to optometry we are alums or just we have an incredible group of alums that, that continue to contribute and give back to the college every day. It's it's amazing. Uh, I guess a follow up is, do you still drum? <laughs> I do. Uh, ask my wife. I'm coming on everything that's, that's near me. But no, right behind me, what you don't see in my office is my electronic drum set that's right over here. And it's a wonderful way to uh, to, you know, release a little bit during the day. I kind of like this. Uh, this, uh, you know, the, the silver lining, if you will, for a horrific time we've all been through, that spending a little more time at home, you get to do some things at home. And, and I think we've all learned that the world has changed and certainly education is there. But yes, I do continue to play my drums. It's who I am. It's part of me. I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, I put my headphones on now with these new electronic drums, which are super cool. You sound like you're playing in like a huge amphitheater. It's great. I can make believe I'm a I'm a rock star. One more thing before I get back to optometry. Could you become a professional water skier as well? <laughs> yeah, so that, that was another passion I had. You know, when I came to optometry school, I told people I skied, but I had never actually skied on snow. <laughs> Growing up, I skied on water. It was something I really enjoyed and uh, taught it for a while. And, you know, not a bad life to be able to spend your day in the water teaching kids how to water ski. My ambitions were a little bit bigger to at least, you know, grow and do other things, but I, you know, I still love skiing. I'm passionate about it. It's a wonderful sport um, and a great, uh, great way to get out on the water. But I have learned to enjoy snow skiing as well. I must say, uh, since my time in optometry school and beyond, and so I try to do that uh, with some regularity pre-pandemic, of course. Hopefully, getting back to some of that. And I have to say about getting back, Scott. I don't know when this show will be on, but you know, we've all just come from Vision Expo East. It was amazing just to see everybody again and to be around people and to feel that energy, feel this industry, which is such an incredible industry and so many people who care so much about it. It was really fantastic. You know, social media is great and we all have learned to communicate so well there. Mm -hmm. Zoom is great and what we're doing here, it's fantastic. And I salute you for the things that you do to bring, you know, information to people, but being around each other, it's, it's hard to beat that. And uh, it, it was really great to see people again. Yeah, the engine is definitely idling and ready to go. I bet you don't know, we've never talked about this, that I uh, didn't do any formal ski instruction, but I grew up on a lake and was, I think to say, uh, quite an accomplished water skier myself. We didn't know we had that in common. 
How about that? How about that? We'll have to get out there someday and uh, and get on the water and see what we what we still got. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your time. Uh, you're now starting just about your your fourth year beginning here at New England College of Optometry, and you've begun to gather enough intel that you can be a great voice to the listeners about what is is changing so quickly in optometric education. You've already talked about how we compress so much more in a short time, um, but could you give us some insights about things that the practicing OD might not know about how your curricula is, is, is supercharging for these graduates of the future? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that's clearly the first point, which is things have accelerated so much and the expectations, the expectations that all of you have when you, you know, Where'd you go to school, Scott? You're an ICO grad? ICO, yep. Yeah. So, you know, when you see someone from ICO, you have some pride. Hey, you know, someone graduated from my school. Your expectations are that their skill set's going to be, you know, significant and they're going to know their stuff and they're going to impress you. Um, and that's what our goal is, to make sure that that person who graduates is the best prepared they can possibly be to practice anywhere. We say anywhere in the world because in North America, we are very fortunate to have among the best uh, scope of practice laws in the world, right? So we have to make sure we're setting that bar. Um, so where it all starts is with our faculty. They're creative, they're top of their game, they're passionate about what they do. And again, that to me has been one of the most uh, inspiring things that I have seen in addition to the students is what they've given. And what they've given over this past year and a half too, in particular, when it's tough enough with just our families. We all know this. And to now continue teaching. Think about teaching when you're not seeing anybody, right? Because a lot of students, a lot of times they're on Zoom, but all you see is a name there. We, we teach, people teach, you know this, because they want that engagement, that interaction that we have, and that went away in many ways, yet they still continue to just, just push on so hard. Uh, other things I think people might want to know or might be surprised by, perhaps, is because maybe my interpretation before, the caliber of the optometry student. I mean, we had an event at NECO called the Industry Collaborative, and we were so appreciative that so many of our industry colleagues were able, were able to join us. And we thought that it would be key to lift the hood, show what's going on in, in, in optometric education, what are the real challenges, not be beating around the bush. These are the key issues and see how we can engage more with our industry colleagues to try to, to continue to do what we all want to do, which is push optometry and push eye care overall forward. So... They had a chance to see our students and to ask questions, any questions they wanted to. We left an hour for it. We probably, Scott, could have left three hours for it. The questions were amazing, but I will tell you to a person, and I heard from almost everybody, it was, wow, you know, that's the future of optometry right there. We are in great hands. The passion, the knowledge, the intellect, the, the even sensitivity for some of the aspects of optometry that it takes men, it took at least me a long time to understand. They're involved in the political side, although we do have to help them a little bit more with understanding why it's important to join the AOA and academy and groups like this and what is the value there. So our caliber of student is, is just mind boggling. But then I will say on the other side, we really need to focus on continued diversity. If you come to NECO and you come to most schools and colleges, and you know I, I hate to do that, so I'm gonna just speak about NECO, but I hope that in general, it's true in most schools. You are going to see diversity, but you're going to see gaps in that diversity. For us and for many, it's Black students and Latinx students. We must do a better job of recruiting all, in particular, what we consider to do in optometry today to be underrepresented, 
professionals. We have to do it, and it doesn't just happen. It's not natural. We have to work at it. Um, today, we're graduating at NECO 80% women, and that's almost the exact opposite we did when I was a student. Mm -hmm. um, we need to make efforts towards making sure that underrepresented individuals in optometry are informed, are aware. To a large extent, what we have, Scott, is an awareness issue. When we go, we, this year we spent even more time and effort going to HBCUs, so historic black colleges and universities. And, and I will tell you, I'm proud to say that we will have probably more, among the most diverse classes we've ever had in our history. But going there, when we can tell our story about optometry, most of the time the reaction is, wow, I didn't even know about that. And by the way, I can be a doctor. I can make a six-figure salary walking out of school. I can change people's lives every single day. I can have a good work-life balance and have the credibility of, of being a doctor. Yeah, we're, tell me about that profession. How do, I, how do I sign up for that? We're not going after the ones who thought about medical school and, and couldn't get in, so maybe optometry. We're going for the ones who want to go to medical school and just providing them with an option. Think about optometry. And again, when we can tell our story, it, it's really amazing um, how far we can get. So we really need to, to work on that. And by the way, and you know, for the listeners here, I think this is such a critical component. I'm not sure you guys all appreciate how critical you are in recruiting the future of optometry. I meet every single person that comes to NECO for an interview. Um, and I sit with them and sometimes sit with them and their parents as a group. And to a person, why optometry? So I asked them why NECO and why optometry, because those are things I'm interested in, among telling me about telling them about uh, you, who you are. Um, it is almost always I met an optometrist, they inspired me. I saw what they did. I saw how much they enjoyed what they did. Um, you guys, you, Scott, and our colleagues have so much to do with the future of this profession, and I don't even think you realize it. And in some cases, they're not even telling you. They've just been coming to your office since they were a kid. You are so good to them. You take great care of them. They see how you care for their family. It's not a scary visit, but yet we can find out so much about them systemically, visually, you know, head and neck. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You know all this, but we have to make sure others know it. But let me tell you, um, this profession and, and the importance of how our college or the important role that our colleagues play in recruitment cannot not be underestimated. But we need to adapt. You know, we, we, we have to adapt. Education is changing. Um, students don't come to class. Um, you know, Harvard Medical School, because I'm fortunate enough to be in Boston. I can talk to Harvard and BU and BC and MIT and yeah. UMass and Tufts. I mean, I have... We have wonderful organization of all the independent schools. So I get, get these people's ears. You know, even in Harvard Medical School, when you have a class, if there's not quizzes or they don't view it as necessarily critical to be there, people don't come. So now we've learned through Zoom and through other vehicles that we have to adapt and adjust. When I went to school, and I won't put you in my category, you're much younger than me, but we assumed you came forward, you showed slides, PowerPoint, whatever it may be, you digested it, you memorized, you gave you a test. That's not the future of education. And now having focused my attention on education, we have to adapt. We have to adapt as a profession, but speaking particularly at the schools, you're going to see some evolution of optometric education that I honestly believe will be for the better, where we can engage the gens of the world who brings a particular expertise to the table and mention others, your, your favorites in all these categories, to help our faculty deliver real-time, real-world, um, you know, current as possible information that make us all better. So just one example, but we have to evolve. And 
we're going to see that evolution. And like any evolution in anything, it's going to be a little hard at the beginning because we love tradition in this profession. <laughs> we love to do things the way we've done them. We can't continue, in my humble opinion at least, we can't continue to do it exactly the way we've done it. And we need industry to support us in doing that in the right way. That's not industry influencing curriculum and curriculum development, but that industry that has skin in the game, they need great graduates, is ready to support it. And we have so many incredible partners that do that. And thank goodness, this wonderful profession, you know it, you've been part of that. And you've been one of the ones who've supported these types of things at times. We need that. And I thank them so much for the support they've given to our college, through scholarships, uh, through support for programming, for education, equipment, technology. I mean, to stay, I, I admire my colleagues in academia to stay up on all the new pieces of equipment. You know, you're making a decision in your practice to see how much revenue it's going to bring you. I'm interested in that as the CEO as well here, but I also have an obligation to make sure little Scott, before he became Dr. Jens, is exposed to all of that technology. So now you have to balance these things. And our industry and their generosity is absolutely amazing. We could not do it without them. That's fa fabulous. I just want to echo and sort of amplify your commentary about diversity and equity and inclusiveness in optometry. Uh, your compatriot at the Illinois College of Optometry, uh, President Mark Collip, and Dr. Nana Awusu have established a diversity, equity, and inclusivity committee, as New England College of Optometry has done in its way. And I see, as somebody involved to a bit uh, at ICO, what is going on with schools and colleges. And it is imperative that those of us that are ODs not only do the great things for our community that get young people to get enthused about optometry by what they experience, but that we also take it on ourselves to reach out to the kids that might not have ever accessed us, that might be really interested in science and mathematics and the things that are great underpinnings for optometry and bring those kids to our practices and start young because we can go to historically black colleges and universities, but we've got to make a difference earlier. And I encourage our entire profession to embrace this idea of bringing this best part of our community forward um, so, so we do have a better representation of the public in optometry school. So thank you for what you're doing at NECO well, to make that happen. Well said, if I may. Well said, my friend. I, I couldn't say it any better. And, and look, uh, under John Flanagan's leadership, ASCO is really focusing on this because if we don't do it at the schools and colleges, we're never going to change it. An optometrist doesn't just come out of thin air, thank goodness. They are trained. And so we have to start at the schools and colleges uh, and so many people, you know, ICO, Mark doesn't get any better than Mark. He's just a, a wonderful guy. His leadership, um, John Flanagan's leadership, and, and many others. He, at SUNY, they've done a really good job at SUNY. David Keith has done a good job. You could go on and on. I'm right. proud to be part of that group that really has taken this issue seriously. And even in the major campaign we have right now, Optometry Gives Me Life, which is a wonderful campaign supported by the industry and the schools and colleges to encourage uh, students to consider uh, optometry as a profession. We are being as as forward as we can about showing that diversity. You can do this, whether you've never heard about it before, you didn't think you could do it, your family has never, grad, you don't have a graduate in your family who came out of college. The generosity of our industry is enabling more and more of these type students, first generation and representing underrepresented groups that we just direly need in supporting some of the great work that they're doing. So Thank you for all those comments. You and I both feel exactly the same way. It's a critical, uh, critical piece for our future. I'm glad you've been a leader on it. 
Um, now, just a few moments I want to spend on your history in the industry. Between your practice and your time now at the college, uh, you worked for both J&J Vision, uh, which uh, others knew and have known as Vistacon, and Essilor. I'd like to briefly cover each. Um, we got to know each other really first when you were leading the Vision Care Institute in Jacksonville for Vistacon. That must have been a really interesting time. Um, tell everybody what that was like. And um, I was curious, do you, have you kept in touch? Is, is that still a, a going entity? Yeah, so it's evolved considerably from the initial vision uh, to what it is today. And that, that just, you know, it happens over time. We sure. did this, you know, many moons ago now. So, uh, but you know what? It was an incredible uh, experience when you join. So joining industry for the first time, you know, I'm working at, at Nova Southeastern. I'm loving, I'm in specialty contact lenses, which was my thing. And enjoying every day working in my father's practice. And you get a call out of the blue to... You know, are you interested in joining industry? And, and my answer was, you know, why would I do that? I love what I'm doing right now. And, uh, you know, I started giving them some names of some other people. Anyway, <laughs> as is typically the case, our spouses tend to be a little smarter than us. Um, I came home and said, you know, I heard from J&J and Vistacon, although I don't know if anybody even knows the name Vistacon anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, they said they were interested in, you know, in me. And I told them I wasn't interested. And she said something that since you probably have an audience that I, is mixed, I won't use the, the exact language, but I kind of, are you an idiot? Um, and uh, so I did wind up contacting them and, and deciding to take the opportunity. And the college was wonderful to me. It's basically try it. If you hate it, your job's still here. So you know, I had to move from South Florida to North Florida. And then this opportunity arose where, uh, you know, I was in professional affairs. I'm really trying to learn the ropes of being in industry. I really knew nothing about it, but you know, took a chance and tried it and, you know, spent 13 years there. So I, I, I enjoyed it very much. But the Vision Care Institute was a real jewel. There were so many people who worked so hard to make it successful. But the concept was to bring students in to help um, at, as an adjunct to the current education that was going on. Where were the areas we have Nothing at all to do with product sales at all. In fact, it was interesting after about two years, people started coming saying, we'd like to hear a little bit about products, which was, of course, a wonderful thing to hear. But we needed to get the confidence of the deans and presidents of the schools and colleges. So we invited them all to test it out first and come and visit. And we wanted to say, what are the things you can't do? Some of it was business of optometry. And the key thing back then was communication skills. We can't spend a lot of time on communication skills. So we really took that under our wing and said, what we're going to do is we're going to bring these students in. It's free. We fly them to Jacksonville. They spend three days with us. They will hear from some of the top key opinion leaders in the profession about how to be successful in optometry. Then we're going to bring actors in, and they're going to present bad news to a patient. And our actors are given scripts on how to act. And what we would do is videotape those. And then we would have you know, what we would consider to be experts. Walt West was one of our experts. Some of you guys may know Walt. He was terrific at this. And he would sit down and they would critique, show some great examples, some funny examples, etc. What was really interesting was our actors took this very seriously. And the students hated the videotaping part until the end when you asked them what was the best part and they got the most out of it was that videotaping. So that concept grew and it became Vision Care Institutes all over the world. I had a chance to travel around the world and set up these incredible places. All were intended to look very much the same. And by the way, all were intended to communicate with each other so that if there was some great speaker happening in the Czech Republic, which we did have a facility there, 
that we could ex benefit from that. And if something was happening in Jacksonville, where sort of the home base was, we could broadcast that out to the world. And it was incredibly exciting. Then the, the next step after that, ironically, was now to set up these vision care institutes at the schools and colleges. And so I think, and don't quote me on this one, but I think somewhere around at that point, 12 or 15 colleges, NECO still has its, has our facility similar, uh, had their vision care institute satellite facilities, which again, the concept was sharing knowledge around the world. So that was just such an amazing, uh, fun uh, and interesting experience. We got, uh, ultimately we were bringing a thousand students a year to Jacksonville. Um, the partying side of it, we had to keep under some control, but the rest of it went really well. Jacksonville's a fun place to visit, a lot of fun beaches. And so uh, we had a good time, but that experience was incredible. The whole Credo and J&J, and &J, for the business thinking people out there, if you've not studied or are aware of the J&J Credo, I encourage you to learn about it and, and to, to make it a part of how you think. It has helped me in everything I've done in my career in just prioritizing things. It's an amazing document. But I learned so much there. Stan Yamani, George Mertz, uh, the people who taught me there, uh, iconic names in, in our profession. I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have been side by side to learn from, from those guys. And we don't have to go into this for a long period, but I just like to make sure that the world knows as we get together in this camera form that um, Dr. Howard Purcell had a lot to do with the infancy program, although he won't take credit for it. Um, because Johnson & Johnson Vision supported the American Optometric Association's infancy program, the Vision Care Institute was open for a series of events, just like they brought students to Jacksonville, we brought state leaders from all over the country to Jacksonville, and they shared the Vision Care Institute, and Howard shared not only his expertise, but also the team uh, expertise around how to launch products and how to message to the public um, to the forefront and to the volunteers that ultimately had to go back home and find doctors that would see infants to provide a primary care eye test and evaluation as part of the AOA of Infancy program. And I'm, I hope you're proud of that, but it was an amazing time to see eye doctors there, the way you had brought optometry students in and have them collaborate and talk about communication. It was really a special time. It was a special time. I agree. I, I tip my hat to people like yourself and Bubba and others who committed so much of themselves to, to this wonderful program that I know I see stories all the time of the difference it's making in kids' lives. I mean, serious differences in kids' lives. I, it's wonderful. We were so proud to be part of that. The, the funny thing, and it's still on video somewhere, I, re, I remember we were trying to go through a, a bit of a demonstration to show people kind of this is, you can do this, right? It was a little nervousness, which you can imagine if not everybody has seen infants before, you know, the first time. You go, so I, I recall holding this infant and we're talking about how wonderful it is. And this little baby is just being perfect. It was one of our employees' babies. Yep. And literally just kind of turned around. The baby just puked all over me. And I know, I thought somewhere in my life, I will probably see that video somewhere. It hasn't turned up yet, but it was an honor and a privilege really to be part of that. And the fact that it still continues and still continues to change the lives for so many uh, babies and infants is just, I hope you have a good sense of gratification for that as well, my friend. Absolutely. And then talk to us about your time at Essilor. Obviously, you go from a very substantial player in the contact lens world to a substantial player in the lens world, and you really uh, had a great impact there. What was the best part of your time at Essilor? Thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, I will say that... Um, 
I, I don't regret any uh, of my decisions in my career. That's a nice thing to be able to say. I loved my time at J&J. I learned so much. But the if you know me, I like new challenges and new things. And, and you know, uh, a guy named uh, a wonderful, amazing man named John Carrier, who I'm still friends with today, uh, gave me this opportunity to be the first optometrist that Essilor had ever had on their board. And, and although scary... <laughs> Uh, to sit around the table with just these incredibly brilliant people who were deserving of sitting around the table, not necessarily being absolutely sure I was deserving of sitting around the table, but having someone who had that confidence in me to give me that chance uh, and trying my best to represent optometry every day. Uh, what an amazing experience. So, you know, when I think about that, I really became, you know, I was an optometrist representing optometrists in industry. I really feel like at Essilor, I became a corporate executive optometrist, representing optometrists in industry. And that was because of people like John and so many others who influenced my career. Um, you know, what I loved about it was we were, they listened. Uh, they wanted to hear the optometry voice and optometric perspective. Um, they thought it was important. He had that sight, that foresight. Now, don't get me wrong. I probably butted head with, heads with him as much as anybody did. And, uh, and I think to some extent I was rewarded for that. Um, something I've learned in my career that you really believe in something, stick to it. Even if maybe the big boss doesn't agree, people ultimately will respect that. And now that I have a chance to sit in that seat, I can see why good leaders do respect it. Now you have to choose, pick your battles. You have to be respectful. <laughs> so I don't jump the line too much here. But we had great discussions and great uh, battles. And what he taught me was be prepared. If you're about ready to battle me over something that we don't agree with, you better come to the table prepared. Um, and, and that was just, just a huge lesson. I'm super proud of the team that we built there, of the education we were able to provide, uh, to be really leading a communications group for such a significant uh, company where they allowed us to make sure the optometry voice was front and center all the time. Now, did we win every discussion? No, but they listened. They heard. We influenced it. Nothing went out. Uh, under the Essilor name, unless the professional side saw it and had eyes on it. That, that to me was just incredible. So that along with just having a chance to create this new role. And now Millie Knight is there. I think you've, you've uh, interviewed Millie. She's amazing. She's taking it to a whole nother level now. She's just a superstar. And I'm so thrilled. You know, I, I, there were very few jobs, I have to be honest, that I would have left Essilor for. I loved it there. I loved the people. I loved what they were committed to. I loved the foundation and what they're about. Uh, caring, really caring people. The current leader, Rick Gadd, I was side by side with Rick before he became president there. He's a wonderful man who wants to do the right thing in this industry. And you know, now having Billy there, I'm just so thrilled to have you know someone come in who's going to just continue to represent us in, in the best way possible. It's so important. You know, I tip my hat to people like the Rod Tirans of the world and the Dave Sattlers of the world. Even though Dave's not an optometrist, but he brought that perspective. You know, just so many people, Rick. Uh, from, you know, Alcon, just White people Spires, who yeah. just were, were there representing us and doing the best they could. It's so critically important. You think about it now, back then when those people started, it wasn't commonplace. Today, you're hard-pressed to find any company that doesn't have an optometrist. And it's not just let's have an optometrist because it looks good. It's let's have an optometrist because we think they can bring value. And that was something that was really important to me when I went to Essilor. This isn't just about okay, we're going to have the first optometrist on our board. It looks good, but we really, we don't even have to attend meetings. We're fine. You know, that kind of feel. Never, never, never was it that. And that was so important to have our voice heard. So I don't think those, that group of people gets the, the credit they deserve for putting us on the map in industry and demonstrating 
we can bring value. And that's why I hope our future colleagues, and we don't need tons of them, but some of them at least would consider industry. And I'm seeing some great people now moving over into industry who are really been successful. A lot of our speakers and presenters who now have understood the value of having optometry represented there. And I salute them and will support them in any way I can. I would be remiss if I didn't get a chance to ask you about your family. That's the, the important team behind the scenes that most of us that are with you in industry don't get to see. Your wife, your daughter, your two sons. Tell us a little bit about your family. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I met in college, and uh, she's a journalist. She started a newspaper in South Florida all by herself. At one point, wrote every article, delivered the newspaper, got the ads, uh, it was ultimately sold to a larger group. And so really proud of her and her, uh, all the things that she's done in addition to being a great mom, of course. So I have amazing children. Uh, all three now have graduated from, uh, uh, I was going to say from optometry school, no. <laughs> but all three graduated from college. My, my uh, youngest, my little princess just graduated from the University of Miami. You were big U fans. So uh, very proud of her. And then the two boys are SMU grads, uh, which was wonderful because we lived in Dallas. We got to see them a lot. All out in California now, everybody's in the motion picture business. So very proud of them and how they've done and their ambition. It's just uh, wonderful to see that in our children. I know you can, you can certainly appreciate that. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, I have hard even to say this. I have two grandchildren now. I will have three grandchildren by uh, September. That is just, first of all, it's the most incredible thing ever. I, I wish it on everybody at the right time in the right place. It's my oldest who has two and now the third one coming. It's amazing. It makes life just even more beautiful than it already is. And, you know, he calls me pop because the grand part I had a little tough time with. So pop is what we go by. And okay. when he says it, I melt. It's incredible. So, you know, family is, is amazing. I'm learning more and more about my family. My kids got me one of these things where you find out a little more about your history. And so I have uh, been very interested in learning more about the history of my family, although I knew a lot about one side, which, I, which I've shared already, the other side of my family I didn't know a lot about. And, and I'm really intrigued by it. And now meeting some of my family that I didn't know. I don't know if anybody's had that experience with some of these, uh, you know, uh, 23andMe and different things that you can do. Uh, but it's really intriguing. I am now, you know, confirmed that I knew I lost family members in the Holocaust and just things like that that are just really uh, amazing when you think about the fortitude and, and the drive and determination that so many uh, had in coming to the United States and to, you know finding uh, a great life and building a great life for their families. I, I continue to be blown away by our students who you know are first generation that are just so driven and motivated and they, and they wind up being some of our best students because that it's just something special about you know understanding the burden and the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring, inspiring, inspiring. That's my word for today, Scott. I like it. And you've traveled to amazing parts of the world. You hiked the Grand Tetons four times. You've been to Africa and India. What have you learned about yourself from those travels? I mean, there's beautiful places, but what did you learn about yourself? Wow. Um, Africa was the biggest. I went to Malawi, Africa when I was during my tenure at Essilor. And, um, it recalibrated me in many ways. Uh, when I arrived, um, there was a desire to show appreciation for what Essilor had done in terms of significant work that Essilor and the foundation do around the world, which is amazing. And I know many foundations do great work, but Essilor does as well. And uh, they wanted to show their appreciation, so I pulled up in a car, which is not seen very often in this community that I visited. 
And um, I was clearly uh, the only white face in the crowd. And I was surrounded by not underestimating several hundred people who had a desire to thank me for, for what I had done and wanted to talk to me and wanted to invite me into their homes and show me the difference that uh, generosity can do. You know, you think about there, these communities we visited, it, changes, it changed the financial picture of that community when the 45-year-old women can still sew, the 45-year-old women can still read because you're providing them a pair of glasses, a pair of reading glasses, something just as simple as that. Um, and the how happy they were, how little things made such a difference, where the, the young ladies would wake up in the morning, and you've heard these stories, but I heard them and watched them. They would be asked to take a big bucket, to walk about two miles, fill it up with water, put it on their head, and walk it back. And I thought to myself, and I love my daughter with all my heart, but if I was to suggest to my daughter, hey, you know what, in order for us to have water today, I want you to do that, she would look at me like I was out of my mind. Um, you know, when you want to have eggs, you have to have a farm. When you want to eat, you have to farm somewhere. The life is so different, and it really recalibrated me, first of all, to give and continue to give everything I can to supporting um, areas both in the United States and outside the United States that are not as easily accessible to get eye care. You can't just walk anywhere and everywhere. But it also made me a little self-conscious about stuff, about just what's important, about you know, money and, and, and what makes you happy. Uh, you know, I, I, I asked a kind of a funny question. I hope this is not insulting to anybody, but I asked the question of, because most of them don't have electricity. So at night, everything got dark. And my question to one of the nice uh, sort of leaders of this area um, when I was there was, so what do you guys do when it gets dark? And his honest answer, he looked at me in the eye and said, that's why we have so many children. So <laughs> I got the message pretty pretty clearly on that, uh, but it's just amazing people who see just the small things that you can do uh, that make such a difference in their life, and that left an incredibly lasting impression on me, and, and I think it, to a large extent has affected who I am, my drive, and it's not just me, but the entire college and our, our faculty and, and staff and students to make sure we're representative, make sure, because when you have underrepresented doctors, they tend to find their way to underrepresented communities. That's just fact. That's, we know that. And, and we have to take on that responsibility. And it's our colleagues, Scott, who are going to be able to help us with that. You have a great, somebody sitting in a chair could never imagine the possibility they could become an optometrist, but want to do it and want to give back and want to serve their communities. And let's talk to them about it now. You made a great point. No time is too soon. Yes, we're working at HCBCUs and those kind of things and trying to go after second year college students, but that's the most, you know, uh, current or most, you know, acute way of getting to it. But we also need to work back a ways and, and our colleagues are the key to the success of that. And one last point, uh, you've always been somebody that's been positive. Uh, it's very obvious. You always look for the best in the person you're working with. And you seem to always break down concerns really clearly and you look for answers to questions. I've loved that about getting to know you. And I'm curious if there's somebody in your life you attribute this to, this constructive approach to business and life. It's, it's, it's a very positive trait that we should all think about trying to copy. To whom do you attribute it? Well, um, many, but if I, you know, not having enough time today to go through so many people who have influenced <laughs> my career, it gets back to probably two people, but primarily my dad. You know, my dad 
his favorite saying, and I said this to my son at his wedding, was expect great things. And what he meant by that was not that great things just happen, but you should expect in your head that great things are going to happen. Don't expect, oh my God, this could go wrong and that could go wrong. Don't expect that I might, if I give it everything I've got, I might get there. But expect yourself to achieve great things because it's the only way you're ultimately going to get there. And I think it's helped me to have a, you know, if I talk about the professional side of my life, professional side of my career, you know, that, that probably was one of the things that had a big influence like that. And then to be perfectly honest, and I'm not going to use any names here, I've seen people who are miserable and I don't want to be that, you know? And, and so you learn from great people who just emanate Dave Brown. I saw you interviewed Dave. Dave to me, I walk in Dave's room. I, Dave happens to be a friend. Our daughters are friends. He just makes me happy being around the guy. He's just upbeat. He's positive. He's thinking about new ways to do things. Surround yourself with people like that. And I've had those, but I've equally learned as much from those people who, and again, no names need to be mentioned, but we all have them in our life. who just never can be happy. It doesn't matter. They're not going to be happy people. And I look at that and say, that is just not me. It's not what I want to be. And I try to focus on the, those other people, Jen Stewart. Can you not, not smile when you talk to Jen Stewart? I mean, She's amazing, right? What she's done, she happens to be a NECO alum. I always like to mention that part. Uh, but Jen's amazing. You know, just some of these people that just make you smile when you when you have them around you. And, and I think, as I said earlier, maybe a good place to end it too is to say, you have a bad day in optometry, spend a day at ICO, at NECO, at PCO, or wherever you happen to be close to. See what the future of this profession, how excited they are. I promise you, you will go back to your office with a a big smile on your face. And, and lucky for me, I get to do it every day. Well, keep making greatness there. Uh, I can't wait to see how your impact on that college helps make it one of the best institutions in the country. And thank you, Dr. Howard Purcell, for sharing these wonderful stories with us. Thank you, Dr. Scott Jens, for allowing us to share our stories. It's appreciated. And to the audience, thanks as always for listening all the way through and attending this podcast. I'm really grateful you got to hear from Dr. Purcell. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.